following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Well, thanks, Pat. Hello, everyone. My name is Jesse Bocanegra. I'm the high school pastor here at Faith Bible Church, and uh, thankful to be bringing you the word this morning. Uh, my wife is Brooke, who many of you know. She's emailing people constantly for the church. Uh, you might know her better than I do. No, you probably know her better than you know me. Not better than I know her. Um, yeah, but uh, so I'm part of the preaching team here, and we're going to be working through the Old Testament, as Pat has just told you on the screens. But I just wanted to pause first and let you know that I'm so thankful to be doing student ministries at Faith Bible Church. I've never seen student ministries done like this at any other church, a church that is so invested in the next generation, a, a church that is dedicated to, to bringing up young people. And so I just am so appreciative. And I want you to know that the Lord is working in student ministries. If you're going to the baptisms today, you're going to see that. I think over half of the people being baptized are high school students. And so you can rejoice in the fact that God is working. And I'm just thankful that I get to be a part of it. I should say, uh, that, so you know a little bit more about me, I've got one baby on the way. October 16th, Brooke is due, and it is a boy. Is anyone in children's ministry here? Do you serve in children's ministry? I'm sorry for what is coming. Um, if he's anything like me, we need to pray. So anyways, it is somewhat poetic that I'm standing here today on this high school campus preaching the Word of God because... It wasn't too long ago that on this campus I was running from God. If I'm honest with you, when I was in high school, I was the coolest kid on the campus. <laughs> I was the most athletic, the best looking. When I would walk through a hallway, people are going, Jesse, Jesse, and then the security guards are, you know, protecting me. Let me just show you the evidence of how cool and attractive I was. Let's see. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, freshman year. That class is where I met Brooke. Uh, this is not about me and Brooke, but I made her a ring out of gum wrapper. I said, you're my wife. And then uh, I guess I prophesied that into existence. But you can please take that down because students are taking their phones out to take pictures. Thanks. Uh, no, I wasn't the coolest kid, obviously. My hair was awful. I was very awkward. Um, I was foolish. I was so young and I was so naive. I was calling myself a Christian and I wasn't one. I didn't even know what that meant. But it was on this campus that... FBC's high school ministry did an on-campus ministry, and that's where I was first exposed to biblical teaching. It's the first place I ever heard the gospel. It was through that ministry that I was connected to this church and attended youth ministry, and then from there I attended a camp where I heard the gospel clearly taught, and that was where for the first time the Lord had opened my eyes so that I could understand the truth. It's where he changed my heart, and he granted me faith and repentance, and from that day I've been walking faithfully with him, and so I'm so grateful for all of the ways in which God has been using FBC in my life and so many others. But what's ironic is that if you were to come to this campus on a Wednesday at lunch, you would still find me here. But not as the kid going from class to class. I'm the person who's bringing the pizza and the Bible. They call me the pizza man. And I get ridiculed and people go, is that pizza? And I go, yeah, that's why it's in a pizza box. And they want to, me to give it to them for free. But they follow me into a class and I preach the gospel. I get to preach the gospel to students who are just like me. And it's one of my greatest joys. It's one of my favorite things I get to do in high school ministry. 
It's really interesting, though. You would think in a conservative valley that most kids are calling themselves Christians anyways. But that's not the case. Every four weeks, I take a break from whatever I'm preaching through, and I will do a Q&A. They all get a piece of paper. They can write down any question they want, and I have to answer it on the fly. I have to get through the questions of, like, why is there no pineapple on the pizza? Um, can you please put ice in the cooler? Our waters are warm. That's not even a question. That's a request. Um, but then I'll finally get to the real questions. And the real questions always revolve around generally three things. Evolution, the Big Bang, and the existence of God. That is where our culture is. That's where the young people are. But it's interesting that it's not just the high schoolers in our valley who are, who are grasping to an atheistic worldview. In fact, in just a few days, me and some people from the high school ministry are going to Czech to do an evangelistic English camp. And do you know that Czech is, if not the most, it's one of the most atheistic countries in the world. Atheism is not just prevalent in our valley. It's not just prevalent in our state. It's not just prevalent in the United States. Atheism is pervasive in every corner of the world. It's dangerous. And this is where our world is headed. Whether you're in our valley or across the world, you will find it. Just listen to some of the world's famous authors, politicians, and entertainers. There's quotes in your outline from them. Mark Twain says, You believe in a book that has talking animals, wizards, witches, demons, sticks turning into snakes, burning bushes, food falling from the sky, people walking on water, and all sorts of magical, absurd, primitive stories. And you say that we atheists are the ones who need help? Jesse Ventura says, Organized religion is a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people. Ricky Gervais says a Christian telling an atheist they're not, the Christian telling an atheist they're going to hell is as scary as a child telling an adult they're not getting any presents from Santa. Ernest Hemingway, all thinking men are atheists. Last one, Sam Harris, he says, either God can do nothing to stop catastrophes, or he doesn't care to, or he doesn't exist. God's either impotent, evil, or imaginary. This is the world that we live in. How could the quote-unquote greatest minds, the famous politicians and loved entertainers, come to such opposite conclusions than us? And how can we be sure that they're wrong and we're right? But atheism doesn't just stop with the rich and famous. It's right next to you. I mean, it's your hairdresser. It's your, it's your neighbor. It's your family. It's your friends. It's the people that you interact with every single day. How can we convince them otherwise? But maybe atheism's not just out there. Maybe atheism is in here. Maybe you too, in a moment of anxiety, when tragedy hits the family, when circumstances get difficult, maybe you too question the existence of God. Now, you would never say that out loud because your identity is wrapped up in Christianity or because your identity is wrapped up in the church and you wouldn't want anyone to know that, but maybe you too, in the quiet of your heart, think, there's no God. Well, having a biblical worldview is the only way that we can properly assess the world in which we live. And David, in Psalm 14, provides us with just that. He gives us a correct appraisal of the world. And we need to give our attention to it this morning. Would you turn to Psalm 14 in your Bibles. 
Psalm 14, as I mentioned, penned by David. We learned last week David was anointed as king over Israel. And during his time as king, he wrote some psalms to be sung in corporate worship. And that's what we study this morning. Psalm 14. As you turn there, let me ask you, if God was to speak, would you listen? Probably yes. Now, if God was to speak to you, and then he was to repeat himself, you would go, okay, this is very important. God doesn't typically repeat himself. If God was to say the same exact thing to you three times, it's as if alarm bells are going off, exclamation points are around the things that he is saying, and that is what we have here. The truths contained in Psalm 14 are repeated three times in scripture. Psalm 14 has almost a mirror image in Psalm 53. It almost is the exact same. In fact, in Romans 3, Paul quotes Psalm 14 as the focal point of his argument. It is the anchor in which he makes his argument of Romans 3. And in Romans 1, it's as if Paul is writing a commentary on Psalm 14. So if God was to place these truths in your Bible so many times, it's as if he handed you his, your Bible himself and highlighted the passage for you and said, you need this. This is massively important for you to study deeply and understand. It's very important for us. We are in a self-centered society. And when you're walking through the mud, you get dirty. And so it is too easy for us to think too highly of ourselves. We are too quickly to think ourselves better than we actually are. And Psalm 14 is the perfect prescription to bring you humility, like nothing else. But it's not just for us to have humility. I think if we recognize that ultimately we are here right now to what? Make disciples of all the nations. If we're here to evangelize the world, then we need to understand deeply the world in which we are evangelizing. If we want to be effective in evangelism, we need to have a, a firm grasp on this world. And that's what Psalm 14 provides us, a thorough analysis on this world. Look in your Bibles at Psalm 14 and read silently as I read aloud. Psalm 14, for the choir director, a psalm of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread. For God is with the righteous generation. You'd put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. Psalm 14, if you couldn't tell, is telling us, one thing, nobody's good. Nobody's good. It's unmistakably clear. And I think Psalm 14 provides us with three perspectives that lead us to the conclusion, nobody is good. Three perspectives that will make up our outline this morning. Perspective number one, the fool's perspective. 
Point number one is the fool's perspective. Look with me at verse one again. It says that the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. Now, the word fool is different than the modern uh, usage of the term. I would say a biblical definition may be something like this. The fool is someone who is morally wicked, not intellectually lacking. Someone who's morally wicked, not intellectually lacking. The word in the Hebrew here is nabal. Okay, I said it, you say it. Nabal on three. One, two, three. You speak Hebrew. This word is used in 1 Samuel 25. It's actually the name of a man who is not dumb. In fact, he's a very successful farmer. He owns a ton of sheep. He's rich. He's a smart businessman. He's business savvy. And yet, he's a wicked man. He does bad things. And so his wife talks about him and she says, Nabal, Nabal, is his name and so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. He's wicked. We find this word used again in 2 Samuel 13. It's a story of Amnon when he forces his own sister to sleep with him. And while this act is about to happen, she looks at her brother and she says, if you do this, you will be Nabal, a fool. Genesis 34, a very similar story. Story: Shechem forces one of the daughters of Jacob to sleep with him. And the brothers hear of what happened and they say that that act was Nabalah, disgraceful. In Isaiah 32, the nail in the coffin says that a fool speaks nonsense and his heart, get this, his heart inclines towards wickedness, to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord. So do you see here that a fool is not someone with a low IQ, but it's someone who is no good. And look back at verse 1. Look where the fool speaks. He says, in his heart there is no God. Notice that the fool doesn't say it in his head. He doesn't even say it with his mouth, but the fool says in his heart there is no God. And this is important right at the outset that we understand this because I think before everyone in here goes, why are we only talking about atheists? I don't need this. This is for the atheist. Can it be that though you say with your mouth you believe in God, that in your heart you don't? We know Jesus' words in Matthew 15, don't we, where he says that this, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart, their heart is far away from me. I believe that to be the state of the American church. Do you know that 65% of Christian men confess to regularly watching pornography? You know that 20% of Christian women confess to regularly watching pornography? And from all kinds of churches, every year, over a million people are abandoning the faith and the God they once said they believed in and loved. So yes, it is possible to say, With your mouth you believe in God, but say the exact opposite thing in your heart. I wonder this morning if the Lord was to strip away all of your deeds, if he was to take away your moral lifestyle, and he was to cut straight and deep down into your heart, would he find it genuinely beating after him? Or would he find it cold, dead, and denying his existence? 
Look with me back in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's interesting because the English translation actually supplies the words, there is. The original Hebrew simply says, no God. As in, no God for me. I don't want anything to do with God. I'm going to live as if there isn't one. And this is crucial for us to understand because it's not just that the unbeliever doesn't believe in God. It's that they hope he doesn't exist. It's a choice. So think with me. Why does the Bible describe the person who doesn't believe in God as a fool? Why can't they just be misguided? Why can't they just be uninformed? You might say, are we ignoring the fact that there's brilliant atheists in the world? The Bible describes him as a fool because he knows there's a God and yet he denies that reality. We find this in Romans chapter 1. Why don't you flip there with me? Romans chapter 1, I told you before that this is pretty much Paul's commentary on Psalm 14. It's the most extensive discourse we have on atheism in the entire Bible. I think it's very helpful for us to analyze it to grasp what's going on in Psalm 14 as we look at the fool's perspective. How do we know that everyone knows God exists? Paul says in Romans 1, 21, he says, Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And so you might say, wait a second, how does everyone know that God exists? Well, Paul answers you. In verse 19, he says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The evidence for God is so thorough, it is impossible to not know he exists. My friend Terrell Medina says, there's no such thing as an atheist because of this verse. Everyone knows he exists, they just deny it. In fact, James Boyce says, according to these verses, and this is in your outline, according to these verses, the revelation of God in nature is not hidden so that only a highly skilled scientist can find it. It's open and manifest to everyone. A child can see it. There's enough evidence of God in a snowflake, a fingerprint, a flower, a drop of water to lead any honest member of the human race to believe in God and worship him. Every single object in the world shouts God to humanity. And our response to this evidence ought to be thankfulness and worshiping God But if it's so clear that God exists, then why are there so many people who say that he doesn't? Paul answers, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, right here, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That means that men will be deliberately stifling any and all truth that challenges their sinful lifestyle. So do you see that people don't become an atheist because of compelling scientific evidence? 
They become an atheist so that they can indulge in their sin and act like there is no God who will judge them. You can never look at the world without a moral bias and say, well, of course, men came from monkeys and monkeys came from reptiles and reptiles came from fish and fish came from a living organism and a living organism came from a dead one and a dead organism came from matter and matter came from nothing. No, you must foolishly say in your heart that there is no God and then based on that false presupposition, you'll grasp at straws to prove a worldview that approves of your own sin. But Spurgeon comments on this in your outline. He says, but as denying the existence of a fire does not prevent its burning a man who is in it, so doubting the existence of God will not stop the judge of all the earth from destroying the rebel who breaks his law. Nay, this atheism is a crime which much provokes heaven and will bring down terrible vengeance on the fool who indulges it. See, the fool says that there is no God to ignore the judgment of God, but ironically in doing so, provokes more wrath from God. And look back in the text of Psalm 14. Turn back over there. And we'll see how theoretical atheism will always lead to practical atheism. David comments on the fool's perspective of the world at the end of verse 1. And he says, they are corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds. The language he uses here shifts to an active meaning to say that they are acting corruptly. They are doing abominable deeds. Because when you say there is no God, you can then live as if there is no God, no one to be accountable to. I went to Thompson Middle School, and in seventh grade, I was in algebra, but I wasn't smart enough, so they put me into pre-algebra. And when I got to pre-algebra, I would sit there, and our whole class would be very attentive when the teacher was present. I mean, we would lock in with her, we would write things down, we would be quiet, we wouldn't mess around. But I remember one day, one day, the phone rings, but it's her personal phone. And she looks at it, and she says, class... One second, I've got to take this. And all of our class was like holding our breath, like no way. And we watch her walk out the room and it's like the door was slow-mo open. We're like, she's leaving us. And then it goes to shut and it shuts. And we all look at each other and we go nuts. We're like, we're free. And so I, I, I mean, kids are yelling. People are cheating off of other people. I the class clown get on the desk. I start dancing for them. I'm trying to get someone to laugh. I mean, absolute chaos broke out. It went from order to chaos because the teacher left the classroom. You see, the atheist is saying, God has left the classroom. There's no one watching. And so I am free to live however I want. I have no one to be accountable to, no one to judge me. I know many here say that there is a God, but does your life reflect that reality? Or do you live like God is not looking? Do you live like God sees everything that you look at in public and private? Do you live like God hears everything you say? Do you recognize that God sees your internet searches, your Netflix account, the things that you think about? God hears your conversations. He hears your music. The things that you even say in your heart, he hears. 
My worry is that many professing Christians live atheistic lives, but don't be fooled. Luke 8 tells us that nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will, that will not be known and come to light. And so look back at the end of verse 1, and we see that there is no one who does good. This is the state of our godless world, and this is the conclusion that the fool's perspective leads us to. It leaves us understanding that this world has no neutrality, nothing good. The fool's perspective leads us to understand that nobody's good. But more important than the fool's perspective, and more helpful than the fool's perspective, is the second perspective, the Lord's perspective. Point number two, the Lord's perspective. And these will go by a little quicker now. The Lord's perspective. Look at verse 2. It says that the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. So the Lord's perspective is that from up high and he's looking down and he's scavenging the earth to see even a glimmer of wisdom, even a glimpse of knowledge. Because many wrongly assume, I can't see God, he can't see me. Not the case. He is actively looking. The language here reminds me of of Genesis 6, the flood account, when it says that, that God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt. It's like reminding me of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, when it says that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which they had built. See, God doesn't judge without first observing the evidence. He looks intently upon every single one of us. And what does he find? He finds that they have all, in verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. He finds that not even one is good. And so before we say, well, he must see something good because we're not all atheists, are we? We must trust the Lord's perspective. He has looked and he saw any, any, all, no one, all together, no one, not even one thing good. This is an all-inclusive term. We are not excused from this passage. One commentator says, the fool's not a rare subspecies within the human race. All human beings are fools apart from the wisdom of God. And it's, I can hear someone say, but Jesse, wh- what about the man on an island who really wants to know God, but he just doesn't have a Bible? Are you saying he too's corrupt and he can't do anything good? And I would tell you, I have never seen that man. But God has. And he tells you right here that his search came up empty. Nobody good. Well, what about an unbeliever who is helping an old woman across the street? Are you saying that that's not even good? Romans 14 tells us that whatever is not from faith is sin. And we just got to trust God's perspective He has looked and he has seen every heart of every man, the motive behind every action, and he couldn't find one that was good, one that was pure. This is you and this is me. God didn't look down and say, there's some good people in Marietta. He saw all of us running from him and shaking our fist at him. Look at verse 4. It says, do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread. For God's with the righteous generation. And you put to shame the counsel of the, of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. 
David uses this language of eating bread to show the nonchalant and habitual nature of the unbeliever. They will regularly, as if they were just chowing on some bread, persecute, malign, and mock the followers of Christ. And that's because if they hate God, they will hate God's people. And we are not greater than our master. If he was persecuted, we should expect it. And so God will cause in them a great dread. Do you see that? In verse 5, there they are in great dread. I remember I told you that Psalm 53 is almost a mirror image of Psalm 14. And it has an interesting variation on this verse. Psalm 53 would say, there they were in great fear where no fear had been. And so the image it's painting for us is that of a high and mighty sinner who's so secure and confident in themselves that they're mocking the followers of Christ for their beliefs. But later when they go home and they're in the quiet moments that they have to themselves and their head hits the pillow, they are struck with a great, unspeakable fear, terror, and anxiety because they know that their conscience is testifying against them. They know that God is real and he will judge. The principle is that no matter how much you tell yourself God doesn't exist or that he's not real, the law has been written on your heart and you'll have moments where you feel the guilt of breaking it. God will prove you wrong. Can you think of anything better than swimming with dolphins? Curveball, sorry. Well, dolphins are cute. They're friendly. They're like dogs that live in the ocean. And my wife is an animal lover, and so I thought on our one-year anniversary trip, we went to Mexico, I thought, if I want to make this really good, I need to take her to swim with dolphins. So as any good husband would, I didn't just get the one-hour package, the two-hour package. I went with the five-hour dolphin swimming package. They gave us the free lunch. I mean, what else could you ask for? And you might be thinking, well, that sounds amazing, unforgettable, the best thing this side of eternity. And if I showed you the pictures, I, I don't have them because they were 160 bucks. I couldn't afford them. But if I showed you those pictures, <laughs> you would see that very thing. You would see us having the best day of our life. I mean, it's like wedding, dolphins. <laughs> the pictures that you would see were me getting the foot push, where the dolphin takes its nose, pushes your foot, and you come out of the water like this. <laughs> and then you would see Brooke getting a beso on the cheek. That means kiss because we're in Mexico, and it's a Mexican dolphin. And it, it would... <laughs> kiss her on the cheek, and she's smiling. You see me high-fiving its fin. You would see us having, quite literally, the best day of our lives, but those pictures would tell you a lie. That could not be further from the truth. The reality was, we swam for five hours in, in dolphin waste, thick and smelly. Um, it was awful. I couldn't, they wouldn't allow me to wear sunscreen because it would get in the dolphin's eyes. So my shoulders got shredded. They were, I am not exaggerating, bleeding. And I scabbed and I have scars on my shoulders now. And the trainers would speak to everybody else in Spanish for about five minutes and explain. And everyone's going, oh, wow. They would look at us. They would go, basically, they're good dolphins. And we'd be like, okay, great. And then, and then to top it all off, the free lunch we got gave us food poisoning. And we were stuck in our room for the rest of the trip. Yeah, it's sad. But though often it seems like things are going really well, behind the scenes they may not be, and that's the case we have here. Though often it seems like the people who disobey God 
live the best life. They have the most fun, the most friends, the most followers, the best family, the most wealth. Know this, behind the perfect life they portray online, there are moments of great, unspeakable fear, anxiety, and dread because their conscience is testifying against them and they know they will meet their maker and they will be held accountable. They know judgment is coming. And so don't envy the unbelieving lifestyle, though you may be tempted to. Bank on the truth. Trust the Lord's perspective. But I want to stop and and ask, do you have those moments in the quietness of your heart where you're hit with dread and fear? We know that many will approach Christ on the last day and say, Lord, do we not do all of these things? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Many will fake their Christianity with church attendance, with the big John MacArthur study Bible, with the collared shirt. But God has told me here that you know if you're a fraud. He has watched you freeze in dread when you thought no one was watching. Because you know, verse 5, that God is with the righteous generation, not with the wicked. And you know, verse 6, that the Lord is the refuge of the needy, not those who see no need for him. You know that God will ultimately judge sinners and he will either punish his son on your behalf or he'll punish you in full. Don't continue down the path of unconfessed and unrepentant sin. Give glory to God and say what you've done Repent now while it is still day and you can still find mercy. Do you believe in point number two, the Lord's perspective? Or are you, are you actually convinced that no one is good? What this is saying is that your friends, your family, the people that you work with the, who are unbelievers, they're not neutral. They're, they're being called wicked They're workers of wickedness who eat up God's people. They humiliate the lowly. Do you actually believe that? Because this means that every unbeliever that you're thinking of right now is an enemy of God. James 4 says that whoever makes themselves a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And this should lead you not to fight God's enemies, but to pray for them, as Jesus commands us in Matthew 5. We need to trust the Lord's perspective that nobody is good. And when we trust the Lord's perspective, it will lead us to the third perspective, our final perspective that we're analyzing. Point number three, the hopeful perspective. The hopeful perspective. Look with me with verse seven. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. I don't know about you, but this verse is like a breath of fresh air when I see the word salvation. The majority of this psalm has been a universal indictment on humanity. It's had a somber tone. But in verse 7, it shifts and you can almost hear the song changing to have an upward lift in a major key. What's going on in verse 7? David is praying for salvation to come from Zion. Zion is the area in Jerusalem where the city of David was built. And Mount Zion is where Jews would, would travel and they would go up to worship God. Mount Zion is where Solomon eventually built the temple. Zion is really the focal point of Jerusalem here, the city of God. 
It's the place where if you wanted to get as close as you could to the presence of God, you would go to Zion. And so for David to say that salvation would come from Zion is to practically say we're hoping that salvation would come from God himself. Because the hopeful perspective recognizes that we can't save ourselves. It's looking over the shoulder and realizing all of us are on an even playing field. We all are guilty before God. We all have a debt that we can't pay. And so none of us can help the other. And so the hopeful perspective then looks to the only place that they can, which is God himself. The God who we have provoked is our only hope for mercy and forgiveness. You know, if someone was to punch you, just clock you right in the face, and then they come to me and they go, will you forgive me for what I've done? I would say, I literally cannot do that. You didn't punch me. You got to go to the person who you offended and they are the only person who can grant you forgiveness. And so it is with God. We have offended God and God alone and so he is the only person who can grant us forgiveness. We can't look to works. We can't look to morality. We can't look to Buddha. We can't look to Allah. We must look to the God of the Bible, the only one true God, and ask him for forgiveness. And he is the only one who can grant it. And this is what the godly people in the Old Testament understood. They longed for a Messiah who would come and save them. And they looked forward for the day when God would establish his kingdom upon the earth. And in the middle of verse 7, they they looked forward for when the Lord would restore his captive people. Your translation might say something slightly different. The general meaning of this term is that the Lord would bring restoration to his people. A restoration between God and man. They looked forward to the day that God would come and he would set up his righteous throne in Zion. They were looking forward for the day that God would step foot in Jerusalem and they waited for God to come to Israel to save them. And so it is no coincidence that it was in Israel that Jesus truly God and truly man, was born of a virgin and lived a a perfectly righteous life. He actively and passively did good continually. And it's no coincidence that it was in Jerusalem that Jesus Christ hung on a cross as a substitution for all who would believe. And it was no coincidence that on that cross, God poured out his wrath stored up for sinners upon his son who deserved no wrath but deserved a reward. And it was no coincidence that it was an Israeli tomb that Jesus laid in and, was, and rose from the dead to conquer the power of sin and death. And it's no coincidence that Israel is the place where Jesus ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And it is no coincidence that In Jerusalem, Jesus Christ will return again, but not to save those who are lost, but to judge those who rejected him and said, there is no God. In this dark world, filled with sin, trials, tragedy, sorrow, difficulty, you and I have every reason to be obedient to verse 7, 
and rejoice and be glad. Maybe you come in this morning beaten up and you're saying, Jesse, I really didn't need a reminder that I was sinful. It's abundantly clear to me. Well, then can I remind you that you can be glad this morning? You can be joyful because Psalm 103 tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. We ought to hear that and sing a little louder. We should be smiling a little bit wider because our sin is forgiven. It is gone. It's wiped away and our salvation is secure and our future is an eternity with God forever. Why aren't you smiling? You should be. This is the reality. Many of us come this morning with a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you to not return to foolish living. You know the truth. You've got it. You don't have to live the same way the world, the, the same way the world does. You don't only believe that God exists. You know him personally. And so you are free to live that way. You have the answers that the world doesn't. And so in your parenting, in your friendships, at work, at school, you can live obedient to God. That is the hope. That brings joy, blessing, and it brings assurance. But if you are the fool described in Psalm 14, and for whatever reason God has chosen for you to be here this morning, then I would plead with you and I would ask you, would you act wisely for the first time in your life? Because there is hope for the fool. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I think it's important that we see just how clear God is about the hope for the fool. First Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that God actually came to save the fool. Verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The gospel is so simple, a child can understand it. Jesus Christ, the God-man, lived the perfect life. He died for sin. He rose again. If you would repent of your sin and place your faith in him, you will be saved. There's nothing more. Why is it that so many will reject that? Why is it that maybe you this morning continue to reject that? I plead with you, forsake your sin and cling to him. He is the hope. 
He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. What you are doing, you can choose to follow Christ, repent of your sin and place your faith in him, or you can choose absurdity, a life without God. Don't reject this and foolishly convince yourself otherwise. And for those of us who have a saving faith, would you again praise God? The reason he chose you is not because you were already so close to believing in him, he needed to do a little bit of work to get you there. It wasn't because he looked at you and thought, well, if I was gonna save anybody, it makes sense it's them. It's not because he looked at you and thought, they're pretty good already. No, the reason that God saved you and I is because we were so foolish, so helpless, so lost, that if we were to be saved, it must glorify God because we could never do it on our own. Apart from divine grace, you are not good. Nobody is. But praise God that he came to save the foolish nobodies like me and like you. Let's pray. Lord, this is the state of our world. It is dead, wicked, depraved, awaiting justice to be dealt by you. Pray that you would keep us as a church humble and remind us that these words are about us and let us rejoice in our salvation that you accomplished. We understand that this is the world that we have been called to go out and bring the gospel to and so I pray that you would help us to have a firm grasp of this world. Help us and and remind us that it's not about how great we present the gospel that will convince sinners to turn to you but it's just your sovereign grace Let that comfort us and embolden us as we seek to be faithful in evangelism. And we recognize that this world is the world in which we're sending missionaries out to. And so we lift those up. We pray for the work going on in Albania, in Czech, in Uganda. We pray that our missionaries would be faithful and effective to reach those who are walking in foolishness and that through all these things you would bring glory to yourself. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.